This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by Brotherhood Mutual Insurance Company, a ministry-focused insurance and payroll provider serving Christian churches, schools, and related ministries. For more information, visit brotherhoodmutual.com. It's Wednesday, March 6th, and this is Quick to Listen, where we set aside hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. On today's show, we will discuss how Christian art has traditionally depicted women and women's bodies. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today. I'm joined by my co-host and our theology and Christian history editor, Caleb Lindgren. Hey, Morgan. Glad to be on the podcast again. I'm excited to have you on this podcast, Caleb. Yeah. I feel like this is actually an area that you are kind of perfect for to join us. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, as the Christian history editor, this is exactly. sort of in my wheelhouse. Yeah. Uh, though I will admit, I don't know a ton about the topic we're discussing, so I'm really excited to talk to our guest. Exactly. Yeah, I'm really excited about that, too. So let me just tell you a little bit about who she is. Robin Jensen is an endowed professor at University of Notre Dame, where she specializes in the history of Christianity and liturgical studies. She's also the author of a couple really interesting books, including Understanding Early Christian Art, Living Water, colon, Images, Symbols, and Settings of Early Christian Baptism, and another book called The Cross, History, Art, and Controversy. Robin, how's it going? How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me on. It's really great to have you here. I guess you're just calling us from Indiana, which is what, several hundred miles away from here, but a whole hour ahead? We are we are in Eastern time, and it's snowing outside, and um, yes, it's cold. <laughs> But we're not too far from Chicago, so... Yes. Yep. It's cold up here, too. Yeah. I think we had another day in the single digits this morning. Yeah, I think so. I haven't been outside yet. <laughs> <laughs> no need. All right. Well, Caleb, why don't you say a little bit more about what we're talking about this week? Sure, Morgan. Yeah. So last week, uh, Christianity Today published a piece by Anglican priest Tish Harrison Warren. The article was half a response to Lutheran pastor Nadia Boltz Weber's recent statue of a vagina made from melted down purity rings that she had people send in to her. And then the other half of the article that Tish Harrison Warren wrote was a history lesson. Um, And I'll just read you a little quote from the article to kind of give you an idea of what was going on. Uh, She says, you want vaginal imagery? The church has you covered. Some early baptismal fonts starting in about the fourth century were quite intentionally yonic. The baptistry of Eucundus in Supatula, Tunisia, and Vitalis baptistry, also in Tunisia, are two that look particularly vaginal, but there are a handful of others that art historians and theologians point to as yonic, or at least womb-like, end quote. So, with that on the table, it should come as no surprise that this article got a lot of attention and no shortage of reactions, and given this intense reaction... Uh, And it's also the start of Women's History Month, which is March. Uh, We thought it would be helpful to have a more thorough discussion of feminine imagery in Christian art. So today on Quick to Listen, we're going to explore how Christian art has traditionally depicted women and women's bodies and have a deeper discussion about what's going on with all of that. All right, Caleb, you have been on the show a couple of times, so you know that we do a gut check. And there's kind of a, a, a decent number of things here to do a gut check on. But maybe the the one that we'll pick for today is, did you have a gut reaction to the actual article that we published? I did, yeah. Um, I thought the article handled a fairly tricky topic in a really in a really careful way. Um, I think she said some direct things that needed to be said in response to some of what Bolsweber was doing. Um, not all of which I think is is totally bad, but I think maybe well motivated but ended up in in a in a dangerous spot. But she also, and more importantly than specifically responding to what Boltz Weber was up to, is I think she brought a lot of clarity to like, there's a there's a history of this sort of imagery in Christian art that gets kind of swept under the rug, if you will. And I thought that was really interesting. And as a history person, I really appreciated the sort of greater amount of context and background that we got. And so I thought the, the article was written pretty well. I thought she handled it um, with care and with respect, but also with directness, which was nice. 
So I had never heard the word Yannick before last week. I don't know if Yeah, I don't think I had either. Which, from what I understand, and Robin can correct me if I'm wrong, this is the term that's used particularly um, to describe the vaginal form. And so it's a modifier oftentimes when that's used in artistic capacities. So that was something that I just like flat out learned. And I, I think kind of my gut reaction is actually just like the decision to kind of do this podcast, you know, which is this larger sense of spending some decent amount of time in Europe last year, which if you're there, obviously, you know, very quickly that you can find depictions of men and women all over churches, all over Europe, and being kind of just interested about how the church really shaped ideas that we have about women. You and I, when we were prepping for this, we're just talking about illiteracy that was very common in many different centuries of church history, at least by, you know, populations that were by and large Christian. And to what extent these images that were on the walls and ceilings of these churches kind of change people's ideas of femininity and so forth. So for the record, we have asked Robin some very deep questions, you know, and I think you and I are both really curious about this topic. So Robin, we are thankful that you are up for the challenge of handling me and Caleb in this conversation. I I think we just need to back up before we kind of talk about more of the specifics about women's art. And I'm wondering if you can just give us a very, very, very broad overview of some of the major eras of Christian art for people who feel like they have never really been familiar with this topic before. You know, Christian art really follows just art history eras, I think. Nothing nothing different, really, about it that I would select and point out. We have, you know, uh, early Christian art, which is really sometimes very close to Roman art, and then Medieval art, which is sort of a Carolingian, Gothic, and Renaissance, as everybody kind of knows. I think the important thing is to think about Christian art as both Western and Eastern, and not necessarily just European. Uh, So you might think about Coptic art and Syriac art and art from the Eastern part of the Christian world as well. But I think maybe most interesting from my expertise, and people don't know, is that there really isn't any Christian art that survives before about the beginning of the third century. So that's one whole uh, kind of a puzzle as to why, um, and there are lots of possible answers, and it might take us all afternoon to unpack that, but I think that's kind of important to know that uh, the earliest examples we have of Christian art date to the around the year 200, at the very earliest, and probably even after that. So And most of what has survived comes to us from the West, a good portion of that is from the area around Rome. Maybe people have heard of the catacombs in Rome where there's paintings on the walls of these um, burial chambers. And also sculpture that was um, made for people's, uh, we would call them sarcophagi, but they're really coffins for bodies. So in addition to the fact that we have a kind of a limited time period in which it gets started, we also have kind of a limited context. It's mostly funereal or to do with burial. And then uh, by the fourth century, everything changes, and we have a lot more, both east and west. Yeah, and that probably relates to the advent of Constantine and his adjustment on position towards Christianity. And then later on, you get, um, oh, shoot, I'm forgetting the emperor who makes Christianity the religion of the empire. And so it probably has. Theodosius the first. Yeah, Theodosius. There it is. Yeah, Theodosius and Theodosius. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. So it's probably related in part to politics, why you have access and preservation of the art. Is that true? I wouldn't actually say politics as much as as wealth. When the church is finally patronized by the emperor and aristocratic families uh, more and more convert to Christianity, people have money to, to build beautiful churches and to make beautiful spaces. I tend to shy away a little bit from the political answer to everything. So that's just what I do. But I think it's a, a, a time when the liturgy is elaborated, um, it made much more complicated, but not to, not for political reasons, but I think for the very fact that people um, are interested in the, in the beauty and uh, buildings. So we start to see some tremendous changes in that time. It would again, I don't want to, I don't want to bore everybody with a long lecture on uh, the history of Christian art, but it really does uh, transform. Uh, For instance, Christians are the first ones to really make glass mosaics in church apses around this time. That's a huge step. Um, It's a wonderful thing to see, but it wouldn't have happened um, without the kind of patronage of uh, wealthy aristocrats and who become Christians. I've traveled in both the 
Muslim and Christian world. And one of the things that you notice really quickly when you go to mosques is that you're never going to find humans depicted there. That is obviously very blatantly not the case when it comes to Christian art. Robin, I'm wondering, has Christian art always depicted women? Always, always. Surprisingly, though, what you expect to find in Christian art is sometimes not there in the the initial stages. So if you were to think about what are the two most common themes in Christian art from all the centuries of Christian art through time, you might say, well, the crucifix, um, and then you might say the Madonna and child. And neither of those are going to be appearing until much later. So those are the things that we see immediately. Mostly what we see at the beginning are biblical narrative images and as much or more from the Old Testament as from the New. So that's kind of a surprise for people. And in that, we, have, we do have women and men. Maybe a few more men than women, but I don't think it's significantly uh, depopulated of women. So instead of the Virgin Mary, we do have the Virgin Mary a little bit, mostly with the Magi, adoration of the Magi scene, but you also have uh, the figures like Susanna. Um, we see the woman with the hemorrhage being healed by Jesus. We have a little bit of, oh, a lot of Eve, <laughs> Eve and Eve together. We have um, Sarah shows up eventually, um, as well as Pharaoh's daughter, um, other figures like that. For those of our listeners that aren't familiar with Susanna or may have forgotten who she is, um, she actually comes from uh, the Apocrypha and in addition to the book of Daniel. And it's a story about a young woman, a virtuous young woman, who is bathing in her garden and some lustful elders observe her. And so they try to blackmail her into sleeping with them by saying that she was planning to meet a man, but she refuses to be blackmailed and stands on her innocence. And so uh, the prophet Daniel um, interrupts this discussion between them and um, finds no basis for their charges against her. The false accusers are put to death, and so she's vindicated in that way. Susanna, for some interesting reasons, very popular in early Christian art. Why do you think that is? One of the things I think that might explain it is that early Christian iconography or art is, as I said, it's largely biblical narratives in the beginning. And I think Susanna, I think she's sort of a Christ figure in that she's an innocent who's accused and in some ways released by the figure of Daniel, who finds sort of almost a pilot figure. You know, he says, I cannot find this innocent woman guilty of this crime. So there's some thinking, um, art historians have sometimes suggested that she's a kind of female Christ figure almost, but she is a hero. I can't always explain why we have certain things we don't have others, but that's just one thought. All right. So I would like to hear a little bit about how these characters kind of fade away and we then kind of end up with seeing Mary or the Madonna all the time, because that has definitely been my experience. And so when you were naming these other examples, I was like, wow, I don't remember the last time I was in a church that had those particular characters illustrated. So I actually am just teaching a class this semester on the art and imagery of the Virgin Mary in Christianity, so I'm pretty full of this. But wow, that's awesome. One of the things that, uh, that one could say with some, with some carefulness is that the cult of the Virgin Mary, though it, it certainly existed and in the first four centuries in some way or shape, it really takes off in the early part of the 5th century after the Council of Ephesus in 431 when Mary is declared to be the mother of God um, in that ecumenical council. And at that point, the interest in the Virgin Mary and the beginnings of the depictions of her and even churches dedicated to her really begin to emerge and uh, become much more prominent. So I think that's part of the answer. The other part of the answer, I think, is that we also see a transition away from a lot, a lot of biblical images into more what I would call iconic paintings, portraits of saints. And so that changes the character of Christian art, and we start to have much more devotional art and less sort of didactic or storytelling art, if you would. So it, that is also a shift at the end of the 4th and into the 5th century. Yeah, maybe you can talk a little bit about how icons kind of at first started appearing in the church. We don't really have a portrait of Jesus as such, even. Um, and by portrait, I mean something that where you just have a, you know, a, a face or a body looking forward and not a, any kind of narrative context. It's not telling us a story. It's simply presenting us the figure. 
And that is quite, it's relatively late. I mean, we don't see a lot of that until the end of the fourth century and into the fifth. Um, and then once that happens, I think people really become much more attuned to devotional images, things that you'd pray with, images that would uh, be used for inspiration and, and less for teaching. That doesn't, I don't want to make this kind of really too simplistic, but that's a general move. And I think it has a little bit to do with the fact that early on, I think Christians were sort of reticent to think to do this because it looked a little too much like pagan idolatry, perhaps. <laughs> it actually relates to something I wanted to ask about related to the cult of Mary, um, that uh, it's been suggested by some that there is like fertility overtones to the cult of Mary and the way that the Madonna and child is sometimes depicted and that the Madonna and child and the cult of Mary was a way of sort of like either addressing, combating, or sort of Christianizing the fertility cults um, and the pagan world and the kind of paganistic way of looking at that. Is that accurate or is that a misrepresentation? I think it's an overstatement. I don't think there's nothing to that. Um, certainly we can say that in Egypt, maybe some of the cult of Isis, some of the, some of the images of Isis may be influential in the way that Mary is depicted. I think we have to be careful about thinking about this goddess background to, to the Christian image of Mary. And yes, she's often depicted, in fact, in Egypt early and then fairly uh, soon in the West in the Middle Ages as a nursing mother. And I, and I think that has a lot to do, now, I would not say with fertility as much as with nurturing, as caring and uh, feeding the child um, from her own body. So that becomes a symbol that I wouldn't say it's a substitute for fertility. I would say it's a, it's a really a big emphasis on Mary is a type of the church, and the church is also our mother. And so I, this will get you into the baptistry. And I, I'm going to just say this very quickly, that I, I hello, Tish Warren, if you're listening, because she was at uh, Vanderbilt when I was also there. And I, I, I like to think that maybe she found out about this baptistry from some work I did, because I published this baptistry in Tunisia. And it really is not... It is a vaginal shape. It's an unusual one. I don't think there are a lot of these, but I do think it has everything to do with the church as mother, as as the birth giver to the family. I sort of step back from the idea of fertility, but I wouldn't step back from the idea of fecundity. <laughs> that makes a difference. I wanted to zero in on that sort of like distinction point, because I think that's part of what's interesting to me in this discussion. One of the reasons why we get some really strong reactions to what Boltz Weber was doing and then the way that Tish was responding was that a lot of like representation of the female form and particularly female sex organs and things like that are very, is very taboo in our culture, at, like across the board, it doesn't matter how you depict it. Like there's a lot of debate these days about whether or not women should be able to breastfeed openly in public and things like that. And then, you know, you see what sometimes strikes our current sensibilities as shocking these um, older Christian depictions of uh, Mary breastfeeding Jesus, you know, with the breast fully exposed and the distinctions between like what is appropriate and what is not and what signifies the wrong sort of exposure and the right sort of exposure is really interesting to me. And I was curious if there is any kind of indication of how they made those distinctions, like what constitutes an appropriate display. If you look at those images of the nursing Mary, um, sometimes we call her Maria Lactans, uh -huh. that's a technical term, but she's always covered except for her breast. I mean, this is not a sexy woman. <laughs> and she's she's um, completely uh, draped in her veil, and her breast often is not looking all that, you know, it's not very correct anatomically. It looks a little funny sometimes. And part of the reason for that is the baby's face is usually turned toward the viewer. Mm hmm and um, anybody who's ever nursed a baby, and I've nursed babies, um, knows that's pretty hard to manage. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think she's actually very modestly clothed in most of those images of the nursing mother. And so the, ima the image is not suggesting sensuality or sexuality or even, I don't think, even really fertility so much as nurturing and feeding and caretaking and loving. If you look at the images that way, I think you see them differently. Um, there's some interesting ones in which she's contrasted with Eve, um, often nude or partially draped or very diaphanously draped. 
because she's the contrast in that instance to the figure of Eve. But I I will cite a really great article, um, and I'm now blanking. Oh, dear. I'm blanking the name of the... If anybody wants to email me, I'll try to give them the name of this article and the title and where to find it. But it shows how the, it's not so much, she's saying, um, a denigration of Eve as a way of showing Mary as the one who somehow redeems Eve, both of them women, one disobedient, the other obedient, and so forth, all those beautiful contrasts that we see often in the literature, and sometimes not so very nice about Eve. But I think that, I think that that is also part of the story. So in my experience, sometimes you're in these particular like male-dominated worlds so much that the female presence or the female body itself can be something that is inherently political or inherently symbolic, I guess. Is that the case, too? Does that start to creep into Christian art as well? Um, yes, I think that's true. I think that, uh, you know, if we show Eve and Adam together as nudes, however, that's the story, isn't it? I mean, so I I, I stare away from seeing it as a completely, and I'm, I, I may be just a minority voice here. So, you know, that, that is true. Other people would disagree with me. But I steer away from seeing this, except in some of very extreme examples and probably in the late Middle Ages, in which we're making any kind of hugely negative statement about women. And I think it's pretty wonderful, actually, that we have these images of the Virgin who is shown with a child on her lap and is the caretaking mother. And they're very, um, often very tender and very beautiful. Maybe the interesting character to turn to in a discussion like this would be Mary Magdalene. And I was wondering about that because I've also taught some courses. I taught them when I was at Vanderbilt on Mary Magdalene, Eve, and the Virgin Mary together as sort of three figures in the history of Christian art. And it's really was sort of surprising to my students that Mary Magdalene is not always depicted in a negative light at all as a prostitute or as something. In fact, for most of the time, in the earliest images of Mary Magdalene, she's the apostle to the apostles. She's preaching. She's working miracles. She's doing all kinds of what she's, uh, she's the first to witness Jesus at the resurrection in the Gospel of John. And so that the scene of, of her reaching out to touch him is a very common one. So these are not negative. In fact, even when she becomes rather sensuously depicted in the Renaissance, and post-Renaissance periods by artists like Titian, she's actually quite passionate. And she is sensual, but she's, it's as if she's um, passionately in love with Christ, not somebody who is scandalous in any way. <laughs> she might be kind of nude sometimes, but, um, but as I think her passionate side that is so um, wonderful to contrast with the Virgin Mary. Yeah, that actually reminds me of the... Uh famous uh, sculpture of the ecstasy of St. Teresa. Similar passion, ecstatic experience. A lot of people argue there's an erotic side to that, but she's very modestly dressed. She's got this whole like kind of robe that she's wearing. Um, and it's sort of this, yeah, it's just like passionate modesty. Those women mystics are very passionate. And yeah. I, I, it's something that we could point to as a as a, as a positive, not a negative. So you had mentioned at the beginning of the conversation um, this really great point that Christian art should be seen as both Western and Eastern. And so the Roman Empire splits just before 400 AD. And I'm wondering how you can talk about how that disruption um, changes Christian art. It doesn't change it so tremendously much. I think what we have now is the ability to build beautiful churches, to decorate them. We are not looking only at the art that survives in funerary contexts, but now art that is in ecclesial contexts, and the churches become more and more elaborate, the liturgies become more elaborate, and that's the biggest change, is just simply that you can you see so much more in East and West. What is different maybe is, and eventually, of course, we'll have art from all parts of the Christian world. So I don't want to just say West and East, you know, in, in time, we're going to have Christian art from every part of the world and all of the continents and in all kinds of ways. 
But while the West will recover the idea of three-dimensional art in the early Middle Ages in the West, the East will never do that. It will continue to sort of resist statuary, whereas the West will emphasize that. And so that's a kind of interesting change. Do you know why that was, that that kind of died out? Well, it didn't ever die out. The West, the East would never do it. Um, oh, the East would never do it. Okay. You know, it's okay. Because I think it it might seem too much like pagan idolatry. So if you have a two-dimensional painting, an icon, if you will, they're, they're very flat, they're very shallow in the in the way the images are depicted. And I think the whole point is so that you don't emphasize super realism or illusionary art that makes you think you're looking at a real figure and you're looking at something holy and sacred, which is categorically different than the things that we have in our world necessarily that we see every day. In the West, the art becomes um, much more emphasized. We see much more statuary developing and there's less of a theological explanation for how one prays with these things, although we still do that. It's not quite the same. You mentioned earlier that when Eve had generally been depicted, she was depicted nude. I'm wondering overall, is there a way that female nudity is handled in Christian art that maybe changes over time? Not really, because when Eve is depicted nude, of course, that follows the line of the story. And often Eve and Adam are depicted, sometimes they look ashamed, but they're usually covering their genitals. In the late Middle Ages, there's a certain amount of um, misogyny, I think, that creeps into the iconography or the art of Eve. But earlier, it's, I think, just a sort of often they're represented as a kind of, um, I, I would say, even sort of model pair, the first married couple. There are nude men, too. So, I mean, Daniel in the early churches in the West is usually depicted as nude. Uh, Jonah is nude. So sometimes uh, even and Jesus at his own baptism is depicted nude. So I'm not sure that I could contrast between the women and the men on that point. The next sort of follow-up to that would be, is there an idealization of form? Or if that happens, when does it happen? Because like when you get later on into more Renaissance art, there's very much an idealization of form, even as they're depicting. I mean, like the, the statuary of Moses is often like he's got kind of heroic proportions to him once you get into those eras. But uh, early on, it seems like in the icons that I've seen of Jesus, it doesn't seem like he's particularly idealized and likewise other biblical figures. In fact, a lot of times they go out of their way to make him look emaciated. It's interesting. The earliest images of Jesus, he often is quite youthful, um, even somewhat feminine in his body type, uh, mostly just youthful male, uh, no beard, uh, beautiful in contrast to the apostles who are usually shown a little more burly and bearded and kind of older, you could see an idealized type there for sure, um, kind of almost Apollo-like figure. And then in time, even with other figures, other male figures and not just Jesus, and in fact, Mary Magdalene would be an example of this down the road, the emphasis on asceticism so that the emaciated figures may have more to do with the idea of heroic monk out in the desert, you know, sort of John the Baptist is probably the best example of someone who would get that depiction. It's not to make him look ugly, it's to make him look uh, like an ascetic, which is a good thing in that time period, not a bad thing. One thing that I'm kind of curious about is skin color. And I know that this is something if you're in, obviously, many European contexts, you're going to see fairer skinned artistic representations of biblical characters. But maybe you can talk a little bit about to what extent that's also true in Eastern art and also kind of the emergence of the Black Madonna as well. The question of skin color. I just had a a funny long email conversation with somebody a couple of months ago about this. One of the things that we do is we tend to want to depict our saints and our holy figures to look like ourselves. And so I think that isn't so much an assertion that Jesus was European to make him look like a European as to say, well, he looks like me. And so, and I'm very careful about this because I think that's every reason why we could have an Asian Jesus or an African Jesus. And so we see something times we call a Syrian type of Jesus, very dark, very swarthy complexion, very heavy bearded, 
as opposed to a kind of more sometimes European Jesus who looks a little bit more like he's got Auburn colored hair and light skin and light eyes. Um, I, I think that because we don't know what Jesus looked like, first of all, the Bible doesn't tell us what he looked like. There's some hints in the book of Revelation about a woolly haired uh, figure, the Ancient of Days, but you know, we don't really get very much to go on. And so I think there's where the artist's imagination is important and comes into play here. And to pick the Virgin Mary in the West often as a woman with, you know, beautiful blonde or, you know, red blonde hair sitting in a Dutch dining room with her copper and her Dutch plates. It's not to say that the artists thought that that's what she looked like. This is how they're showing her um, so that we can relate to this. And the Black Madonnas are, are, oh, they're kind of interesting. In fact, we don't really have any reason to think that they're necessarily, they certainly don't have any African features. So. They're very holy and they're very ancient. Um, sometimes they're actually continued to be repainted black. When I've seen them, they're kind of touched up every now and then. Of course, there's all sorts of theories about goddesses and, and so forth. But I actually think they were just darkened over time. And they became, because they were ancient or special or maybe even miracle working, they became the centers of devotion. But I don't know if there's anything that we can say that means that the blackness is specifically meaningful, other than they're just very ancient and very holy. This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by the MA in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership Program at Wheaton College Graduate School, preparing leaders to serve the most vulnerable and the church globally. I spoke with Kent Annan, Director of Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership at Wheaton College. So Kent, can you tell me about one assignment that a person might do for your program. The students have loved is starting this own nonprofit. So they came up with ideas and they did like marketing presentation for it. They thought through in real detail and budgets of how they would start a nonprofit. And they did the 501c3, like the IRS application for it. And part of what I wanted for them was to at once see how hard it was and complex it was, but also to demystify it. So it's like you go through and say, oh, I could start one of these. And they went all in on it. They worked way harder just by choice than what they had to for it. For instance, some of them volunteer. They're on boards and nonprofits and they're taking stuff straight from class back to their board meetings. I was helping them think things through. For more information, go to wheaton.edu slash HDL. This episode is brought to you by Preaching Today. Are you tired of chasing down quality sermon illustrations? Need fresh ideas for helping your message connect? Each week, Preaching Today adds fresh content to our database of over 14,000 editor-screened illustrations. Quickly find the right story that will bring your message to life and help your people move closer to God. Get started today at preachingtoday.com. Angels. Um... In scripture, they are almost always referred to with masculine pronouns. That doesn't say anything about their gender necessarily, but that's the way they're referred to. You get a variety of different gender depictions in Christian art, but it does seem like as you get later and later more towards our contemporary age, you get more female angels. Do you know like when that shift started happening and if why <laughs> that might be? Well, I have a theory about why it is. Uh, when it begins to happen, you know, I, you see Annunciation images, it's going to be a male angel, but he's going to look a little bit feminine to our eyes because he's going to have a pretty dress on with long, you know, long curly hair. Um, but it will be still a male angel. And in the East, uh, angels remain male and don't look like these uh, figures in long white dresses with um, big wings, big feather, white feather wings. If you think about a figure who has a, a long uh, white uh, dress with big white wings, um, is actually coming from the goddess Victory in the Roman tradition, and she is a female figure. <laughs> and so I think that sort of standard, I don't even think that we see this so much in Western art as we see it in things like greeting cards and little pins and all kinds of sort of um, artifacts of sorts. Uh, that show the angel as having like like the Christmas the angel on the top of your Christmas tree. Yeah, uh, right. 
I think that's actually the goddess victory. Really? <laughs> they adapted it. <laughs> that's so a lot of mixed symbols. A pagan symbol on our pagan <laughs> Christmas tree. Yeah, you might, you might want to have a seraph instead of an angel. <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. Well, our my dad actually, who doesn't have any background in Christian history or Christian art, um, though he's very well read. Um, he, he, he wants to make sure that we have a, we have a star up there cause that's a biblical symbol and he's not kind of confident that the angels are actually biblical in that way. Like, why do we have an angel up there? There's nothing. So he, he's, he's been insistent for years. I'm on his side. I have an angel on my tree. I mean, I kind of star on my tree rather than an angel. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where they were drawing all those inspiration that when they were, and began to depict angels like that. And, and there may be a story behind that. There, there was actually in Rome, in the in the in the before the pre-Christian Rome, the the Roman Senate had an altar for victory with a statue. And I have a hunch that the altar disappeared, but the statue got kept. <laughs> anyway, that is really interesting too. I'm wondering if we could particularly just hone in on the Renaissance, which is a body of art that I would say our listeners are probably most familiar with. If we were going to do see a survey of Renaissance art, what are the, the Bible stories that we would see? Or who are the women that we would see in Renaissance art? Um, is there any other thing that you would want to know about Christian Renaissance art? You know, one of the most famous Renaissance painters, a woman by the name of Artemisia Gentileschi, would be something for you to look at. She did paintings of Judah beheading Holofernes. It's a very violent image, actually. Um, there's a story behind the fact that she was probably raped by her, her father was also an artist and, and she, uh, I, and I'm trying to remember the story. If I don't have all the facts correct, I apologize, but her father's assistant may have raped her and she's a quite an extraordinary artist in her own right. But she did, she did paintings of Susanna, also of Mary Magdalene, as I recall. We have beautiful uh, Mary Magdalene's by Titian. We have paintings of Bathsheba that appear in the Renaissance. I was like, no, I'm not a Renaissance art historian, so right now I'm going to apologize for those who are listeners who are and are thinking of their favorite paintings. But I would, I would point to those. I think there's some, uh, some wonderful paintings of Hagar. So new, new biblical images certainly emerge in the Renaissance, and um, it's an opportunity to also, I, there's a, a museum I should make a, a plug for our museum on campus, the Snipe Museum, which has an incredible image of Pharaoh's daughter finding Moses, for example. So we may see, in fact, more biblical figures of women coming up in the Renaissance than we would have seen earlier. Hagar is such a fascinating character to include, too, because of her, the strange role that she plays. It is interesting just to think that the names of the women that you mentioned here, some of them in some ways are quote-unquote problematic um, for what they have done or have at various terms kind of been... Mm-hmm. vilified, but I don't know, the way that I see it, if they're being painted and so forth, it's almost a way to kind of honor and recognize them. Oh, you know, you have to remember that there are four women in the genealogy of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. So Tamar, Bathsheba, um, Ruth, and um, who am I forgetting? Um, oh, no. The um, <laughs> I can't remember either. I, was, I know. I had all those other three. <laughs> prepared to come up with this. The, Rahab. Rahab, yeah. Rahab, thank you. Thank you. And, you know, it's a, it's a great, it's a, it's, there's some great things written about why those four women are in that story um, and, and what role they play. I, I don't know exactly enough about art history to know when we kind of, like, do we, do we still think that, like, Christian art exists today? I don't know. When, does Christian art have an end to it? I know that's a bizarre question to ask. <laughs> Oh, yes, it does exist. Of course it does. Um, I think it's harder, to be honest with you, for artists who choose to make Christian themes particularly to find a place in galleries. It may have to do with the fact that during the Reformation, of course, arts, artists were sort of excluded from the churches in the, in the Protestant world. And so they began to develop other motifs and forms, landscape painting, still life, portrait painting, secular painting of all kinds. And over the centuries, um, Christian art has has not, in some sense, ever recovered in the same way. And I'm being really careful because there are wonderful Christian artists, and I'm not meaning that they're not any good. I think they do would tell you, though, that it's hard for them to find um, 
New York galleries that will accept their work at the same in the same way. People are skeptical of religious art. I think they worry about it being driven by uh, devotional themes that they don't necessarily share. It's really too bad because we desperately need the artists, and uh, we should be willing to encourage and welcome them. At the same time, congregations tend to like traditional art, earlier periods, and so it's hard for contemporary artists to find acceptance in the churches, too, sometimes. I wonder if it also takes... Well, so the denominational differences and the sort of Reformation um, legacy, I think, is a huge aspect of that, to be sure. And there are certain churches... I grew up um, Presbyterian and Reformed, and there was a, definitely a sort of allergic reaction to too much artistic depiction in at least ecclesial art. Um, and so we had stained glass windows, but they were very abstract. We had cross imagery, which I've been in some Reformed churches that don't even include that because they think it's too close to some level of idolatry. Um, but in more liturgical traditions, um, there's a lot more room for that. And I wonder if it also requires creating a culture. The church that I attend now, which is Anglican, has a lot of artists in it and a lot of them like to attend because they feel like their contribution to the church's communal life is valued. And we have a lot of their artwork on display as a part of um, the worship space. But it's a it's a culture that's been created intentionally over years to sort of develop that. And it's not, it doesn't just happen on its own. This also reminds me of what you were saying earlier, um, Dr. Jensen, about um, patronage um, in the early eras and that there's also sort of a lack of patronage now where people are not willing to to put their their finances behind artistic endeavors in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. So really well said. And I I'm, I I want to give you uh credit for what your church is doing. It's, it's it's wonderful. And at the same time, we have a kind of an interest and movement towards wanting to recover ancient traditions I know a lot of Presbyterians who are looking over at Orthodox churches and saying, what about those icons? Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> Can we have any of those in our church? So we may be seeing a movement of, of recovery or a, a new interest in um, the nonverbal modes of expressing faith and um, surrounding ourselves with devotional images um, and not seeing it as idolatrous. I'm hoping that's a, a, a good ecumenical shift that we might be seeing. Yeah, also... Not to get too in the weeds, but I think some have argued we're moving into a post-literate society where like literacy is very wide, but most of the way that people communicate is through imagery or audio, things like that. And so the need for visual representation that's done well and with a theologically informed purpose in the context of the church is probably really, really important in our current moment. Oh, yeah, that's very important. I'm glad you're saying that because I think... I think we have to realize we're in a new era, um, an era of the visual. Yeah, I just to to kind of just bring this from the Reformation to the the current day. Is there anything that you would like to highlight about how women are depicted in Christian art during that five hundred year span? Well, I think in a in a church that's still in the Reformed tradition, um, the recovery of women's stories. Would be really wonderful biblical stories. I'm, you know, I'm very conscious of the fact that in the I'm I'm Roman Catholic, so I would have a different set of um, expectations. But I think, especially if you're thinking about Reformed churches, I think biblical women could be wonderful um, opportunity for recovering these figures and telling their stories in different forms and modes and ways. And I often uh, kind of try to help my students think about the Virgin Mary uh, when I was teaching in a Protestant context and other figures like Mary Magdalene, the Samaritan woman, you know, let's think about her. Let's do some work on this figure and story. Um, On the Catholic side, I don't think we've ever had to worry, but it'd be really nice to see um, more contemporary images of saints and uh, representations of things that are uh, not just mass produced, you know, plaster statues, but something really quite beautiful as well. I think about the Los Angeles Cathedral with their fantastic um, tapestries. I'm not a modern art historian, but I think there's some some incredible uh, options and possibilities for uh, artists to take these female figures and, and help us to see them in new ways and cover them for us. 
Yeah, I'm looking at pictures right now of the Los Angeles Cathedral. It is really beautiful. It actually reminds me of another church that I love in Oakland called Christ the Light Church. Mm-hmm. I love that church too. And not everybody does, but I do love that, uh, that great Christ image. Well, the first time that I went in there, I just found it so refreshing because it didn't feel, it, it felt like someplace that really was a church in America that I would want to go visit and check out for aesthetic purposes, which there aren't, unfortunately, that many churches in America that would elicit that for me. Oh, I could t- I could show you some other great ones, but we'd have to talk a long time about that. <laughs> I guess that's another podcast. Well, thank you so much for this discussion. It was just so interesting to to hear about all of this. Robin, um, for listeners who have feedback, you can leave us that feedback on Twitter. We're at CT Podcasts. You can also send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. This show is made possible by all of you who support the ministry of Christianity Today, and we are super thankful for all of you. I thought maybe Caleb could share with us a little bit more about what his role is beyond periodically hopping onto this podcast. Yeah, my official title is Associate Editor of Theology, uh, which I think a lot of people assume like my job is to be like the policeman and make sure that everybody's like staying, coloring within the theological lines. Um, but I actually, the, I see it much more as sort of like a, a teaching role. Not that I'm the one teaching, I'm actually going out to find teachers who are really effective communicators and can help people better understand their faith, better understand the contexts for aspects of their faith that maybe. Um, they're learning about, or they're even very well known, but there's a deeper story behind it, like what we've been doing uh, just now. And to bring um, better theological content um, to everybody um, who reads the magazine, listens to the podcast, looks at the website, um, that the, we're getting you know expert voices talking about the things that they know um, and helping us all understand them better so we can appreciate the beauty of our history, the um, sort of complexity of our faith and the, uh, and the glory of God. Um, so that's what I'm all about. And so mostly what that looks like on a day-to-day basis is sending lots of emails and talking to academics and pastors and stuff. Yeah, it's actually, it's a huge privilege. It's a ton of fun. Exactly. Get to work with lots of thoughtful people. All right. So again, if you want to support Christianity Today, our ministry, you can do that by going to morect.com slash podcasts. That's morect.com slash podcasts, and we truly appreciate all of you who have given to support our ministry. All right, now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, and it's a chance for you to get to know everyone better on the show, for them to share what they are grateful for this week, or brought them joy, or something like that. Caleb, do you have something that you'd like to share with us? Mine is uh, looking toward the future. Uh, because this weekend I am traveling to Seattle, where I was born and raised, to visit my parents. Um, and I get to see them just a couple times a year, but it's always great to go out there and visit. I love um, I love getting a chance to see them. I really like the Seattle area, so it's always um, pleasant to be there. And then at this time of year in Chicago, when it's in the single digits, it's still cold over there, but it's usually above freezing, so that's kind of nice too. So this is maybe more personal than necessary, but I have a car and it's old and the heater doesn't work. And so at this time of the year in Chicago, it's pretty miserable. And I've been saving for a couple (laughs) of years and I bought a new car out on the West Coast because I think it'll probably be in a little bit better shape without the salt and the ice and stuff we get here in Chicago. And so um, I purchased it, but I haven't had a chance to drive it yet because it's over there. So I'll have a chance to drive this car and I'm very excited to drive my new car. Are you driving it back? Uh, not this trip. Um, it sounds like my parents are going to come out for Easter because they want to see the way we do Easter at our church here. Um, so they're going to drive it um, in April. That's really exciting. Yeah. Even no, if I'm looking forward you to don't it. have the car this week when you would actually really like to have it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've been putting up with the with the heaterless car for a couple of years, so I can do it for a little, a, little, a couple more months. All right, Caleb, where can people find you? Yeah, you can find me um, on Twitter at C Adams Lindgren, C A D A M S L I N D G R E N. And I tweet very infrequently. So if you're looking for regular entertainment, maybe go somewhere else. But if you want to follow me, I'm more than happy to chat and get to know folks on Twitter. Um, also, um, you can look for the theology content on the website or in the print magazine. All right, Robin. So that's good. And my husband is from Louisiana. So he's making, right now he's making jambalaya and we have gumbo in the pot and we're having students over for dinner tonight. Um, So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, A little bit of bread pudding and some king cake. 
sounds, sounds like a ton of fun. Yeah, I was going to say perfect Midwestern Mardi Gras. Let the good times roll, at least for a little bit. Until yeah. Going to blend. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't have any social media. <laughs> so maybe you can tell us about one or two of the books that you think our listeners would be most interested in picking up. Well, I, you know, one book that um, I was thinking about as I was talking about, I did a book a while back called Face to Face, which is the image of the divine in early Christianity. Um, it does talk about the, the development of the portrait of Christ and also the saints, which might be sort of interesting. I also have my most recent book. Well, actually, it's not but, but one, but um, came out a couple of years ago now is the book on the cross. And your listeners might find that interesting. Harvard University Press published that, and it's a a very uh, I wrote it for a, a general audience, so it's not super duper academic. Um, it's really meant to be a kind of a history of this, this and the story of the cross through time. So, in the the subheading, it says history, art, and controversy. Can you give us like a sneak peek of, of like the controversy part of that? Well, I actually opened with the story of the cross at Ground Zero in New York, which was controversial. Mm-hmm. And I end with um, some people who are very critical of the cross as a Christian image and try to suggest different ways of looking at it as um, tree of life, particularly. So, Wow. No, that's really interesting. We actually just ran an article last week um, because there was a case in front of the Supreme Court and some of the Supreme Court justices were tossing around this idea about the cross and whether it was could ever be considered secular or not. So it sounds like your book is a great kind of continuation of some of the themes they were pulling out there. My precious moment, I guess if we're continuing the Mardi Gras theme, I went to a Mardi Gras party on Saturday and I told them that it should be called Somdi Gras, which is a little bit more accurate to that. The party was actually extremely low-key as far as celebrations of Mardi Gras or Carnival go. But it was really nice to hang out with a lot of friends from church and eat food. And at one point... Someone made a comment about the best parties that happen. You're all sitting on the kitchen floor. And that did happen at some point where I was sitting on the kitchen floor and really enjoyed that. And I guess the other thing I wanted to mention, too, is I started a group last week about writing in Chicago. Chicago is obviously where I live. And I think it can be a really powerful and moving thing to be able to write about the place that you call home. And listening to other people's reflections and analysis of what that means to them as well is just really validating when it comes to creating a sense of place for yourself. So I was really excited to be able to start this group. And I think we're going to be meeting once a month and continuing to do that. All right, people can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. Thank you, everyone, for joining us this week and listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. You can send feedback to CT Podcasts if you're on Twitter, or you can send us an email at podcast at christianitytoday.com. This podcast is available wherever you want to get podcasts. If you want to rewrite and review the show, though, you should go to Apple Podcasts, which is the best place to do that. This podcast is produced by myself, Richard Clark, and Craig Allred, and we will see you all next week. Bye. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.